always yeah. Right over my Look over here Welcome to another episode of Checkmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at Tenement Yard underscore, and you can also visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. I'm the host for this episode, and my name is Paige. In this episode, we will be speaking to Marla Dukaran, and on this episode, we'll be talking about Caribbean debt default and its consequences. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Paige. Um, Marla is the leading Caribbean economist and the chief economist at the Barbados-based fintech company Bit Inc. Um, I guess we can start off by describing what exactly debt default is. Okay, so like any um, other borrower, because you know private individuals borrow, governments also borrow to finance and pay for whatever expenditure they they don't have the revenue to cover at any point in time. Most governments borrow in order to finance big projects that they don't have the money for in the short term. So whether you're building a new airport, roads, bridges, in some a port or any kind of infrastructure, that's you know generally what governments borrow for. However, there are governments like mine in Trinidad that borrow to actually pay wages and salaries and, and, and subsidies, believe it or not, which of course is absolutely, you know, the, the worst thing you can borrow for. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, governments borrow just like people do. And a default is basically when the government does not have the money to repay its loans, basically. Okay. And so, but there are two kinds of debt that government can take on. There's domestic debt, which is where they borrow money in local currency. So in your case, Jamaican dollars. And then there's foreign debt or external debt, as we call it, which is when they borrow in U.S. dollars. The thing about borrowing in U.S. dollars is you have to pay back in U.S. dollars. You cannot pay back in Jamaican dollars or any other currency. Mm-hmm. And so that means that sometimes it's even more difficult to repay those loans because it means you would have to have earned the U.S. dollars from your exports, from your tourism, from your remittances. However, rev, um, foreign revenue comes into your country, the government would have had to earn um, these U.S. dollars um, so that they can repay this debt. Mm-hmm. So that makes it a little more difficult. Yeah. So... But, that, but, but, but governments can also default on local currency debt as well um, and not have the ability to repay sufficiently in local currency as well. Okay, thank you for that, for that introduction. Um, mm-hmm. Can you speak on Caribbean countries that have previously defaulted on, on debt and the, the subsequent consequences that would have followed that? Okay, so when 
um, most governments, when they default, what actually happens is they don't just say, okay, I can't repay you and, you know, let's live happily ever after and go away, right? Okay. What actually happens is the, you say to the creditor, the person who has lent you the money or the investors who have lent you the money, you say, I cannot repay this loan, this debt, this bond. And they say, okay, let's come to the table and negotiate on um, on, on new terms and conditions which you which you can afford. So what tends to happen is that when you default, you have to renegotiate with the creditors a new repayment um, schedule. Generally, that means that you get a longer period to repay them. Mm -hmm. And so your monthly or annual or semi-annual installments, as the case may be, are more affordable, so lower, smaller, okay? Mm -hmm. So any default that we've seen in the region, whether the most recent default was Suriname, um, the most recent government to default, and that happened last year. Mm -hmm. um, in my estimation, Bahamas will be next, and um, that should, I think it will happen within the next year. And then I think Trinidad and Tobago will be the one to follow Bahamas. Um, so what happens, and, and Barbados defaulted in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happens is you, again, get together with your creditors and you offer them a new repayment um, schedule. And that is called a debt restructure. So that means that you can then agree on a way forward to have um, easier repayment terms that you can afford. Um, you've had, for example, Jamaica had the JDX and NDX domestic debt exchanges that was back in, I think, 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. Um, Grenada has done debt restructures. Belize has done debt restructures. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's hard to think of a country, as an independent or, or sovereign state in, in the Caribbean that hasn't had to restructure its debt. The Dominican Republic has, mm -hmm. Haiti has. So it's been, I mean, in, in if you go back in history, it's almost all of us. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I was wondering, just given the state of the world, um, the COVID-19 pandemic and all of its impacts, can you talk about COVID-19's impact on Caribbean countries' economies that have led to the predictions like the ones you've made about the Bahamas and Trinidad and Tobago defaulting on their um, their debt? And you know what? I've absolutely, and it's two very different stories with Bahamas and Trinidad and Tobago. Very, very different stories. Mm -hmm. In the case of Bahamas, the Bahamas was hit with two of its worst crises ever. Mm -hmm in the space of about six months because they had Hurricane Dorian, which was their worst yeah. hurricane ever at, towards the end of 2019. And then early 2020, we've, had been, we've been hit by this pandemic. And so in the case of the Bahamas, yes, they had some fundamental um, economic challenges. For mm -hmm. example, their unemployment was relatively high. Their economy is very heavily dependent on tourism, which makes them vulnerable. They're also very heavily dependent on American tourism yeah. um, and cruise tourism. They're about 80, 75 to 80% of all their arrivals are via cruises. 
So very, very highly concentrated in cruise tourism dependent on the East Coast US tourists. So that's a vulnerability they had from before the pandemic. Yeah. Then they got the, this hurricane and then the pandemic. And so that just created, if you will, a perfect storm that drove their economy into severe distress. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying that the Bahamas had has mainly these crises to blame for the fact that they're in this situation. Conversely, in Trinidad and Tobago, I would say to you that the pandemic is minor in, in when you think about what are the challenges Trinidad and Tobago was facing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first place, this is, this is a country that has grown on average less than 1% for the 10 years prior to the pandemic. So the 10 years to 2019, um, the Trinidad Tobago grew by less than 1%. Wow. Which is, yes, it's, it's quite a shocking statistic, right? Um, because Trinidad and Tobago has natural gas and oil, and you would think and you would hope that these kinds of natural resources would mean that they're more likely to see growth um, stronger growth and more consistent growth, but that's that's actually not how it works. Um, but other than that, Trinidad has had a primary fiscal deficit since 2014, meaning they're borrowing just to pay the interest on existing debt. Um, they've basically made poor policy choices as it relates to the exchange rate. Mm-hmm. Um, Trinidad and Tobago has the single most overvalued currency in the whole of the Caribbean and Latin America. Um, and so all of these poor policy choices and be- basically poor governance in Trinidad and Tobago has led, had led to a very weak economy that, of course, COVID did not help. But I will say to you that COVID is not um, the source of their problems. And also the way that they managed COVID was not stellar in my, in, in my estimation. I mean, Trinidad, as you know, was the only country on earth to have had closed borders up until a couple of months ago. And notwithstanding their closed borders, they still had very high cases of of COVID-19. So which makes you wonder why even bother, you know, to close your borders. So overall, not it is it is the poster child of how not to run a country, in my estimation. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, and I do I do agree. I think those are both very different cases that have led to yes. kind of the the similar outcome in possibly seeking um debt restructuring. Only time will tell, we'll see. Um what are the solutions in, in your opinion that are needed for countries that are defaulting on their so- sovereign debt? So in a case like Jamaica and Barbados. Well, Jamaica has already, in my view, implemented these solutions. Um, Most recently, the legislation that was passed to give the central bank independence from the Ministry of Finance. That is a critical piece of legislation, a critical reform that helps to ensure that you don't end up in a default situation again in the future. And why do I say that? Because when you've racked up a lot of debt in local currency, Um, It is possible when there is no independence between the central bank 
and the Finance Ministry. It is possible for the Minister of Finance to ask the central bank to print money to give the government to pay its bills. Yeah. And that means you can, the government can issue any amount of debt they want almost and the central bank will print the money and buy the debt from the government. This is what happened in Barbados in the run-up to their default in 2018. In, a, in the space of about four years, the central bank in Barbados doubled the money supply by doing just this, printing money and buying government paper with it. So the fact that Jamaica passed this legislation means that it's less likely or almost impossible for something like this to happen again, mm -hmm. unless there is a, a constitute, uh, sorry, an, a legislative amendment to that legislation, which... I'm hoping won't ever happen. Mm -hmm. The other thing that Jamaica did was implement fiscal rules. Um, so you have a fiscal framework that that sets limits on on the size of the deficit, on the debt load, etc. And so it basically forces the government to operate within its budget. It forces the government to live within its means. Yeah. That means they won't be able to rack up the kind of debt that we had seen historically. So those are two critical things, I think, that Jamaica has done to make sure that it doesn't default again. Now, I'm not saying that default is not possible, because, for example, God forbid you get hit with a Category 5 hurricane that wipes out, like, like basically devastates Jamaica the way, for example, Dominica was devastated or Grenada was devastated. Mm -hmm. It means that, you know, it's, it's almost impossible for you to continue financially the way you did before that kind of devastation yeah. okay so not with so so barring that what jamaica has done means that it's almost it's almost impossible for them to, to for me to imagine a situation apart from huge catastrophe it's almost impossible to imagine a situation that will happen again and in the case of barbados they, we, you know, Barbados is in an IMF program yeah. right now and will implement similar reforms to Jamaica again to make sure that this does not happen again. So Barbados is not quite there yet, but is on that same path. And coincidentally, the Bahamas, which is not in an IMF program, not yet anyway, mm -hmm. um, I think it was last year, they passed legislation, either last year or 2019, their, gov their government, which just lost an election, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. um, their, their previous government passed legislation that provided the same type of fiscal limits, fiscal rules on debt accumulation, which is quite commendable because I don't know of any other government who's done that outside of an IMF program in this region. Well, thank you for that. And for our mm -hmm. listeners, if you haven't already listened to our episode on the election in the Bahamas, you can go ahead and listen to that and you'll have a bit of context for, for this episode's conversation. Um, I think lastly, I just wanted to have you expound on a statement that you made in 2020 that says that the EU is an institution that has adopted a discriminatory stance against some of the world's smallest and most disadvantaged countries. Can you talk a bit more about that statement? Sure. Um, so the EU produces two blacklists. One mm -hmm. where it's, pro it's, it's constructing a list of supposed black, um, sorry, tax havens. Okay. And the other one where it's constructing a list of supposed um, countries that are 
uh, guilty of uh, of money laundering and combating and sorry and and financing terrorism. Okay. Okay. So when you think about tax tax havens and you think about um, countries that that support or engage in, in in terrorist financing or money laundering, you think that okay, there's going to be a wide range of countries on these lists, right? Yeah. yeah. But actually, all of the countries on these two lists, every single country, and it's really remarkable that they've structured a methodology to achieve this, but every single country on both lists is a non-white country. Mm-hmm. When you think of tax haven, one of the first countries that comes to mind is Switzerland. I mean, I think they might be the oldest on earth. Yes. But Switzerland, of course, is not on this list. You think of Isle of Man, Jersey, Guernsey, um, you know, none of these, even Delaware in the U.S. Yes. None of these countries make it onto their tax haven blacklist. As a matter of fact, the European Parliament itself said that they made a huge omission in this tax blacklist, and that is actual tax havens. Instead, they blacklist small countries, and I'm not saying that, that you know, none of the countries on the list are tax havens. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that if you're constructing a list of tax havens, you should put all of them, not just ones that are not white countries. The other thing is, what exactly is a tax haven? If a country decides that they have a sovereign right to set their tax policy and they've set their tax policy at the corporate tax policy, for example, at zero, or in the case of Ireland, at 12%, or Poland, or Hungary, why is it that Ireland, Hungary um, can get away with it and it's okay for them to have a low tax policy? Why is Barbados blacklisted because they also have a similar policy? Or the Cayman Islands or Bahamas or the British Virgin Islands? Why is it okay for them and not okay for us? So basically, it's, it's, it's hypocrisy, it's discrimination. And when you dig behind the why, first of all, we're all non-white. So you know that there's that um, likely motivation. But the other thing that you find is that the countries that should be on these lists that are powerful countries are not on the list just because they are powerful. If the EU blacklists Switzerland, can you imagine the diplomatic fallout of that? But when they blacklist Vanuatu, who cares? Nobody does. Vanuatu has 300,000 people. You know, it's a very poor country. Nobody cares, okay? So that's the other thing. We're all small, we're all powerless, and we're all not white. The other thing that is unfair about this is the degree to which these activities take place. It's about proportionality. Money laundering is the washing of any proceeds of of, of crime, okay? So if somebody commits a crime and sells whatever it is they stole, for example, and then they take this money and are able to deposit it or use it for legitimate purchases, that's money laundering. That takes place on every con- in every country on earth. Mm-hmm. The question is the degree to which it takes place. And in small countries where our GDP is the size of the GDP of a small town in your country, how could it be? that we get blacklisted for the very small volumes, relatively speaking, of this kind of activity versus Mm -hmm. the 
billions of dollars that are laundered um, in big countries and in large financial um, financial um, hotspots in the world. So the question of proportionality should also come into play, but it does not. So we're not white, we're not powerful, and we're insignificant in, in the global scale and in the grand scheme of things. And so it's easy to construct this list, yeah. these two lists that penalize us in ways that they don't even understand um, reputationally as well as in terms of how it affects us from a financial transaction um, settlement standpoint. And they don't care because it doesn't affect them and they don't have to care because as far as they're concerned, all of us could disappear and it won't matter to the EU. No, exactly. And I think that using the phrase discriminatory is extremely powerful because that's exactly what it is. And, you know, calling something what it is is extremely, extremely important. Um, thank you. I agree. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and um, your voice and, you know, what you're saying on the world stage and here. I think it's really important that people who are from this region are speaking up in the ways that you are about these issues. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate your reaching out. And I do hope to um, chat with you again in the near future. I hope your listeners find this um, informative and, and it gets them thinking about the way this, these things work. Thank you. And I hope so, too. I know it got me thinking. Um, this has been another episode of the Checkmate Political Podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Don't forget to check us out on social media at tenementyard underscore. And that's on Twitter and on our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. And don't forget to share the podcast with a friend. Always. Yeah. Right over my love over here. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Judge your best eye with the brightest light. And I you shine upon the you them blind. God, with they are so for truth and right. They are so for truth and right. And until the day that my soul takes flight Babylon will hear my voice Cause we're there so for truth and